0: Y'all, we have reached the time of year, uh, not the holiday season, not Black Friday, not not Christmas. We've reached the time of year where football coaches start getting fired. Uh, We've seen just in the last seven days some very high-profile examples of this. My alma mater, we fired our coach midway through his first season. Another SEC school has fired their coach, and yet they owe him $76 million in buyout money. How many of y'all would enjoy getting paid $76 million to not go to work? (laughs) Don't come in. We'll write you a check, okay? How awesome would that be? Uh, What we recognize, though, at at every level of sports, especially as you get higher up, man, there's just so much pressure to perform and succeed, and often a very short leash. Those leashes get shorter every year, it seems. Y'all, even somebody as great as Nick Saban, If Alabama goes three and nine next year, Becky, what's going to happen? I know it's outside the realm of possibility, but if if Alabama went three and nine, there'd be a lot of people trying to send Nick out the door because that's the world we live in. Real allegiance, real assurance. It's hard to come by. Now, we in this room, we don't have million-dollar salaries and buyouts to worry about, but we still live in the same world. Y'all think about this. You know it's true. Our identity... So much of who we are is tied into our achievement. Our value is defined by our success and our utility, okay? Whether that's at school or at work or even relationships. And for y'all, for a lot of people, all around the world today, some of us may be in this room, for a lot of people, that's true with religion too. That my standing before God always feels a little tenuous because it depends on how I'm doing how well I'm behaving, how diligent, how devoted I am, how successful I am, even in religion. And y'all, in this case, uh, there's just very little room for error. We're all on a short leash, if we think about it. Whether that's at work, or at school, or even before God. Because I know that I, I might just be one bad grade, or one bad decision away from total failure, from being cut loose. Well, some of us, we live with that fear, always, Under the surface. And I'll just say, in terms of how the world operates, yeah, the world does operate a lot like that, and I'm not sure we can do a whole lot about it. But I do want to encourage you today that God does not operate like this. Other forms of religion, perhaps, but not the Christian faith. We're finishing up today this great letter of 1 John, and John is going to end his letter by giving the church some very strong and very sweet words of assurance for those who belong to Jesus by faith. John says that there are certain things we know. K-N-O-W. He's going to use the word know several times throughout this Scripture, and it's going to serve as a running theme for us today of assurance and confidence. Something we're going to see, and I hope celebrate together, is that our confidence before God does not depend on our goodness, but on His. We don't stand righteous before God because we have achieved our own righteousness, but because God has sent His Son for us. The Christian message is, Jesus has achieved our salvation for us and has granted it freely to us. And John is going to drive that nail down one more good final time today. So y'all, this scripture here at the end of 1 John 5, it's got three distinct movements. We're going to take each one in turn as we go, beginning in verse 13. John says in verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. There's that word no. I counted no at least three times in that scripture. It's communicating a blessed assurance to us, the church. First, you see this verse 13. John says we can know that we have eternal life. How about that? Y'all, at the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 20, he gives a purpose statement for the Gospel. John says that I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. That was the purpose of the Gospel. Well, here John gives kind of a similar purpose statement to this letter to the church. To those who believe, John says we may confidently know that we have eternal life. Because this life is found in Jesus. To those who believe in the name of the Son of God, we may know we have life forever. Y'all, that all by itself right there should be enough assurance to carry us through this life. If that's all there was. But there's more. John actually gives us a practical effect of this kind of assurance from verse 13. We see it in the next verse. It comes in prayer. It should show up in how we pray. He says, this is the confidence we have before God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. Now, what we just read is a a promise concerning prayer, yes. But the whole promise is built on the assurance we have in our relationship with the Lord. John says, we have confidence before God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now, y'all, I'll just confess that I've I've often looked at that verse, that promise, as a kind of religious formula. Because I like formulas. I like things very cut and dry. I like A plus B equals C. And that's what this appears to be. If I ask God... For the right thing, in the right way, then God will listen to me. A plus B equals C. I like that. That makes sense to me. But I don't think that's exactly what John has in mind here. And we have to remember, if if you've been with us at all throughout this study of 1 John, there are things that John has already told us that are cumulative. We We don't take one scripture only by itself. We don't have to do that. It all adds up together. John has told us something about our relationship with the Lord. It's not a formula. We are God's beloved children. That's something that John has affirmed, that if we trust Christ, then we now belong to the Lord, that he is our Father. So think about how a child approaches a parent, especially a young child. Mom, 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 mom. We know, okay, there's a certain level of confidence that comes with a child's relationship to her mom or a boy to his mom, or a child to the the father, right? That there's there's no pretense. Y'all, when when my children come to me and ask me for something, I don't demand that they go put on their best clothes first, and that they beseech their father with formal language, or something in writing first. No, we don't operate like that. How foolish. I'm their dad. And so, y'all, when we come to God... We come to him as a child to a father. We come on the basis of a relationship that God has created and granted to us. And when we come, John says, we ask the Lord according to his will. Now that is a key point in the scripture here. That we we can ask the Lord for anything, but specifically we come to him asking according to his will. Now, how do we know what accords with God's will? This is actually less mysterious perhaps than it sounds. We can know, for the most part at least, we can know God's will because He's already told us and He's shown us. Y'all, we have an entire book of the recorded will of God. We have the very Holy Spirit of God indwelling us as believers to affirm to us God's word and His will. We're not making this stuff up as we go. That's good news. But you and I both well know that there are certain things about God's will that we don't understand. There are mysteries. There are things we might pray for that we don't get. And apparently God's will was for something other than what we asked. And in that case, y'all, we have to recognize this. God's will is not this ultimate great mystery to us that we have, we're, just, we're just casting prayers into the sky. No, we know most of what God desires us to know if we're willing to read His Word. But when we don't know, when we don't fully recognize maybe what God is up to or what He has planned, what does a child do when when a child comes to the the Father? A child desires the will of the Father. It's not just that we're asking for our own desires. We want God's desire. And so it's not simply to say that I've got to make sure that all the things that accord with God's will in the Bible, those are the only things I ever ask God for. That's not what John means here. What it does mean, I think, though, is not only should we ask for God's will because it pleases God, but it should please us too. He's our Father and we trust Him. We know He loves us. We know that there's no good thing that God would withhold from His children. That's a promise of the Scripture. And so it's asking for the things that we want because we love Him. And so, of course, we want the best that God has to give us. And we ask for it. And when we ask, John says, we know he hears us. And y'all, that's a phrase that means more than just God's aware that somebody's talking. It means that he inclines favorably to us. He draws near. He doesn't just hear what you say. He delights to give you his attention. And he delights to say yes. Y'all, did you know that God has no high-maintenance children? Now, you might be a high-maintenance person, but God does not run the other direction when he sees you coming. There's nothing you can ask of him that's too much. There's no time that you can desire from him or attention that you can desire from him that he's simply not willing to give his children. He delights to see you, to hear you, and to answer. Y'all, this is what the Scripture promises. If we know, verse 15, that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. That is a stunning Scripture. And if we think about it, it makes sense. I mean, what would delight God more than for His children to come to Him... Trusting Him as our Father and ask for His good and perfect will in our lives. What would God delight in more than that? John says that if we do that, God is so abundantly kind and he, he, we belong to Him. We're really, we really are His children and He loves us. Our requests are as good as done. He will do it. The Lord will never turn us away or deny us. Now here's the challenge in a promise like that. If we read that promise... We know God hears us and we know God answers yes to all our prayers for his will. We might either, one, kind of cynically say, is that really true? And maybe we've got a list of things we've prayed for that didn't come to fruition and, and we kind of use that as our own reason for cynicism. Or on the flip side, we might just feel like it's just too good to be true. I, just, I, I want to believe it, but I don't know that I can. Y'all, can I, can I encourage us to try it? And I say that looking at myself too. I think there are a lot of us, a lot of Christians, that if we're honest, we don't try to pray like this. We don't approach God like this. We don't come to Him in confidence and trust. We don't really believe that we have a child-to-parent relationship with Him in the first place. We don't seek and desire His will. We don't ask for His grace. And we don't expect Him to do anything about what we ask. We kind of come to go through the motions perhaps and nothing more. We only pray around the dinner table and nothing more. And y'all, I would just encourage us, starting with me, this might be a good place for us to start to make it our first prayer. Lord, help me to really believe what the Bible just told me here. Because I struggle. I'm cynical. I'm burned over. Um, or maybe I just, I just don't believe it could be true. It's too good. God, help me to believe what the promise has just told us and help me to start praying differently like I really believe it. That would be a great first prayer. it would be a great place to start. A lot of us, we don't experience the Lord in prayer like this because we don't come to him the way that John prescribes. And that might be a place to start. Just ask the Lord for help. Help me to be this kind of person, to pray like a child. That's the first movement of this scripture. Our confidence in eternal life in Christ should inform how we pray. Now, the second movement here is a little more confusing, um, but it's actually an application of what John has already just told us. We pray according to God's will. Okay, what's an example of? What is one kind of prayer that we know God desires for us to pray? John's going to tell us we should pray for our fellow Christians when we see them sinning. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. When, uh, okay, when we read a Scripture like this, there's a sin leading to death. That is both confusing and perhaps troubling. And what the most troubling thing is, John doesn't tell us what it is. Tell us what it is so I'll know to look out for it, so I know I'm not committing it, right? And he doesn't. This is one of those Scriptures that's been you know, debated by very good, faithful, wise people, much, more, much wiser and more faithful than me, for 2,000 years. I'm just going to tell you all how I work this out. And as always, I encourage us to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts. We go back to the scripture to see if these things are so. My interpretation is not the gold standard necessarily, but of course I think I'm right and so I'm going to preach it. When John speaks of a sin, we just read that, I don't think John has in mind one specific sin. In fact, in the Greek language in which John wrote this letter, there is no word a. There is no Greek word a. Okay? The Greek doesn't say a sin. The Greek just says sin. We add the a in because in English we demand context. It doesn't make sense to us without the a. All right? But we put that in there for our own good. So here's how I understand what John is saying. If you see your fellow Christian, verse 16, committing sin, not leading to death, you ought to pray for that person, asking God to give them life. What kind of sin does not lead to death? Well, it would have to be any sin that is forgiven by the grace of Jesus. When John, Y'all, when John speaks of a brother, this is a fellow Christian, we ought to take into account what John has already said about Christians. What does it mean to be in Christ? Okay, It means we are children of God. It means we walk in the light, no longer in the darkness. It means we have Jesus as our advocate who now stands on our behalf as the one who has atoned for all our sins. And it means, we saw this last week, It means we have the Son, and therefore we have eternal life. That's what it is to be a Christian. So a true Christian is someone who has been rescued out of darkness and death and brought into light and life in Christ. And y'all, according to the Scripture, someone who has been brought to life in Christ cannot go back into the darkness again, cannot die all over again and be lost. And so what is John telling us to pray for? If you see your brother or sister sinning, you should ask God to intervene, to bring that person to confession and forgiveness. And this is another promise that John has shown us. Back in chapter 1, we would have seen this probably back in maybe August. In chapter 1, John says, if we confess our sins, God is righteous and He is faithful to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a prayer then that accords with God's will. If we see our brother sinning, we're not worried that he is sinning unto death, that is rejection from God, losing his salvation. But we are praying that if he's dabbling in darkness, that God would bring him back into the light and the enjoyment of Christian fellowship in the Savior, because God wants His children walking in the light. And so my belief is the sin which does not lead to death is any sin that is confessed and forgiven by Christ. And so if you are a Christian, I don't believe that you can sin in such a way that God would take your salvation back. There is, however, John says, sin which leads to death. And John writes, I do not say that he should make request for this. Now, again, in keeping with John's teaching throughout this letter, the, the people who are committing this kind of sin, which leads to death, I do not think these people are Christians. These are, John has already told us, these are the false teachers. These are the antichrists. Another word he's used for them. The deniers of Jesus. All along the way, John has told us, there are people who walk in the darkness. They live immorally, They reject the love of God and the love of others, and they reject the truth of the gospel. They are living in a state of rebellion. And therefore, they are living in sin which leads to death. Apart from the saving grace of Christ, they have no life in them. Because of their denial of Jesus, they cannot experience life. And so the eternal life that is found only in Christ, at this point at least, is not theirs. Now, when John says, I do not say that, that you should make requests for this, is he prohibiting that we should pray for such people? Again, I don't think that's exactly what he means. Um, and y'all, this again, this is Kyle's interpretation. I honestly think, here's what John is saying. There is sin leading to death, but that's not my main point here. I'm not offering commands concerning that. My concern here is for the church and how we love one another in praying for one another. That's the focus. And to me, at least, that makes sense, because John's point here at the end is not to cast doubt, but to bring assurance. That's the point of these final verses. Exhortation to the church to walk in confidence. So that's how I interpret that middle section there. But I think all the pieces do fit together when we come to the end. So look at verse 18 here. John says in verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now again, this might be confusing, but y'all, if, if, uh, if you recall, we, we studied this pretty closely back in chapter 3. You can go back on iTunes, I'm sure, and find it. But in chapter 3, John speaks of the person who is born of God no longer sins. He's not saying that in the absolute sense. Because we just saw it two two verses ago. John acknowledges that Christians still sin. Verse 16. But what this does mean is we no longer live enslaved to sin. We no longer live in the darkness. But now in the light. We're no longer defying. By sin. And why not? Look at the answer John gives us. This is, this is outrageous. There in verse 18. No one who is born of God sins. But he, capital H, who was born of God, keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. Y'all, do, do we, let's, let's sit with this for just a second. What is the Christian message? Right there in verse 18. Our message is not, yes, I used to be a sinner, but then I got serious about God and I cleaned up my life. That's not what we proclaim. That's not what saves us. Y'all, the message starting with me, right here, my message is, I was utterly lost and helpless in my sins. And yet, Jesus loved me and gave Himself for me to save me and grant me life. That's the Christian message. And even right now, right where we sit, the thing that keeps you and keeps me from the darkness, from lostness, from the power of sin and death and Satan, what keeps us safe? It's Jesus. Just as it always was, it's Jesus. The one who was born of God, speaking of Christ, He keeps us, and the evil one cannot touch you. That's the promise we just read. Jesus is keeping you right now just as powerfully as the day He saved you from your sin. That's your assurance before Him. Y'all, this right here is the bedrock John is giving us. This is the safest and strongest place in the entire world for us to stand. To know that your assurance before God is not in you. It's in Him. That's not to say that, there, that, that, that some of our confidence is not built on the evidence of faith, right? If we've read through 1 John, we've seen that. That in our obedience to Christ, there's evidence of saving faith. In our love for one another. In our holding fast to the truth of the Word. All of those things are evidences of a legitimate experience of God's grace and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But those things by themselves are not our assurance. Because those things uh, will wax and wane in our own estimation, whereas the standing grace of Jesus never does. He is the rock on which we stand, not our obedience, not our self-confidence, not our prayer life or any other such thing. It's Jesus alone. And so John clues us in right here to how continually needy we are. None of us is, is, is acing this class today. We need this more and more. Look at verse 19. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. A reminder that the power, the influence, the presence of Satan is real in this world. The testimony that that we were given at the birth of Christ. John tells us in John 1, the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. And so even as we confidently assure our own hearts and the Spirit assures us that we belong to God, we are safe in His grace, we never ever look around us in judgment at everybody else. Because I know that I was once in the darkness too. I'm not here because of my obedience or because of my sincerity or my diligence or my getting clean and getting straight. No, I was once lost and I am only now found because of the grace of God's divine rescue in sending Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm not a Christian because I'm better than anybody else. I'm only here because God has been merciful and by His grace I have received His Son. And so, y'all, this is I, confidence is not egotism. Christian confidence is humility. It's casting all of my confidence away from me and onto somebody else, knowing that he can shoulder it infinitely better than I could. It's Jesus. And so, our only hope, and the world's hope, by the way, John is not giving up on the world. His desire is that the world would hear the message and be saved. So this is everybody's hope, not just ours. It's that we might be transferred out of darkness and into light. And that's what this all comes down to here. As John finishes this amazing letter, our great assurance, the world's great hope, comes down to one thing. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I want to start here with that last verse because it seems tacked on, almost out of place. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Why does the scripture end there? I honestly think this is John's way of saying, y'all, guard yourselves from idols. Anything that would threaten the pure hope you have in Jesus Christ. Protect yourselves from anything. Don't pursue anything in this world that would displace Jesus as the sole treasure of your heart. Because this is the truth. This is what we know. Verse 20, the Son of God has come. Now y'all, the Scripture teaches that this right here, the Son of God has come, that is objective fact. That's not pie-in-the-sky religious idea. That is something that really happened in the real world in history. Y'all, I was at, at Germantown Presbyterian Church. One time we were with the little kids talking about uh, the story of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And uh, we pulled out a map and pointed to Bethlehem on the map. And there was a little boy named Anderson. And he stood up and he goes, that's a real place? And I said, yeah. And he's like, that's a, that's, that's a place in the world? He couldn't believe it. In his mind, this was this, some spiritual thing that couldn't have possibly happened in the real world. It just blew his mind. But it was encouraging to me too. Like, hey, don't take that for granted. This, this really happened. The Son of God has come. Therefore, we know that God's solution to our sin God's solution to the crippling power of darkness is that God would enter into that darkness Himself. We should never doubt that God really cares about sinners or that He really loves you and me. He came in. He has come into the world to save those who could never save themselves. And y'all, here's the good news as we close, y'all, that we, we don't just know facts. Look again at verse 20. The Son of God has come, and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. John has hammered this nail throughout the letter. He's going to drive it in one more good time. To be a Christian is not simply to know about God. It's to know God. We don't just receive His blessings from afar. We belong to Him and He makes Himself to indwell us. That's how close God delights to be to us His children. We are in Christ. This is what God accomplished in the sending of His Son, a relationship that we could never, ever, ever believe if it wasn't true, if it hadn't happened to us. And so, y'all, this is, this is a topic I trust that many of us struggle with. As a pastor, I encounter people... Who say this periodically, and um, and so maybe the shoe fits for you. Um, you believe in Jesus, you love Jesus, but you can never truly feel secure in His love for you. You don't see how God could actually forgive all your sins, especially the sins that continue to haunt you that you have not yet overcome. And so you don't approach God with the kind of confidence in prayer that John talks about. And some of us, frankly, we worry that maybe in the end uh, we're going to be left outside of God's grace and light. And we're going to be one of those people that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, that's going to be me. And so we never feel the kind of confidence or assurance that we just read about. And y'all, I know if that's you at all, if you feel that way, then you can't just snap your fingers and get over it. This runs very deep into the heart. And so I, I don't expect that, that one sermon can magically solve that deep down issue that some of us deal with, but I, I want to consider this and hope that perhaps we would take a step this morning together. Y'all, it is true, and I made mention of this already, if your assurance before God mainly depends on your holy behavior and your diligence in prayer and Bible study, and your spiritual knowledge, and your self-confidence, and so forth, you're never going to arrive at what John's talking about here. You're never going to get there. Um, You may be a very nice, good, spiritual person in so many ways, but you're never going to be able to rest in the words of the Scripture. Because what we do so instinctively, y'all, we look for our confidence in the mirror, That's where all the rest of our confidence is supposed to come from, right? That's what Disney tells us to do. Look into yourself and discover what you lack. But that is not the Christian gospel. We're looking in the wrong place. Our only hope, y'all, is to dig deep down and make our stand on the rock that God has provided us. And yes, it does come through diligence and prayer and 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 study of the Bible and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We don't neglect any of those things. The edifying love of the church, we're encouraging one another in this always. But the truth is singularly outside of you and me. It's not found in the mirror. Our assurance is the unshakable eternal reality of Jesus Christ. Everything rises and falls on Him. You'll find no ultimate assurance outside of Him, but in Him you'll find more than enough. John tells us, and here's just as a way of summary here, we know we have eternal life because we have believed in the name of the Son of God. We know God hears our prayers. We know God forgives our sins. We know we belong to Him because we know Him who is true. Y'all, the only way that blessed assurance can fail is if God fails. You fail, and so do I. Routinely we fail. And so if our assurance is in the mirror, then we have none. But if our assurance is on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, then there is nothing we can possibly lose that He has granted to us by His grace. The only way this can fail is if God can be found untrue. But if God is true, if Jesus has indeed come for us and died for us and been raised again, then we have the solid rock, the strongest possible assurance there can ever be, both now and forever. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing at all could ever separate us from the love of God which we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I I trust this morning that for all of us, we just can't help it. We're always looking to ourselves and our circumstances to tell the story on us. Um, It really, Lord, is is very difficult. I think it's impossible, actually, for, for me, all on my own, to really believe what we've just read that I'm totally secure, that I'm perfectly saved and forgiven forever. I just struggle to believe that. Lord, and so I, I pray for myself, I pray for our Harvest Church this morning, that Lord, by Your Spirit, Father, You would, would enlighten our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, to see, to hear, and to believe what really is true. Lord, what's fundamentally true because you make it so. Lord, if if any of us right now are just convinced that we've sinned too much, we've gone too far, we've fallen too short, and, um, and your love just couldn't reach into this kind of darkness, then, Father, I pray for us this morning that Your Word, um, governed by Your Spirit, Father, would, um, would enliven us, would bring life in place of that kind of death. Lord, it is true, and we stand on it, I pray this morning. The One who was born of God, Jesus Christ, keeps us, and the evil one cannot touch us. We belong to you, now and always. And so, Father, I pray this morning for the kind of confidence that would shake the walls. The kind of confidence, Lord, that would establish our steps so rich and deep, Lord, because it doesn't come from us. It's not our ego, Lord. It's not something we've earned. It's not something we could lose. it's, it's, It's in Christ. And so I pray, Lord, sincerely for us that we would be brimming with confidence and assurance and hope and joy and gladness. Because in Jesus Christ, we have all of Your grace, all of Your fatherly love and care, all of Your promises. We have the Son and therefore we have the life. Lord, I pray that, uh, that the, the, the practical outcome of this would be a, new, a renewed sense of prayer, that we would pray as children, Lord, not as, um, you know, not as those who are coming into uh, you know, the office to pay our dues, we come to the living room. We sit with you, Lord, as our Father, and we approach you, Lord, as one who loves us and always inclines your heart to us. Lord, I, I pray that that in Christ we would have such confidence um, that, that Lord the the church would would just would just brim over and such humility because it's not in us but in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that this is even possible. And thank you especially, Lord, that it is freely given because that's how dearly you've loved us. Let us look to Jesus Christ, our rock, our hope, our Savior. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen.